0: This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast.
1: Let's get right to uh, Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Uh, We've talked about the fentanyl crisis, and uh, there have been a number of comments about that over the last little while uh, right across this country. It seems to be, in many people's minds, that a lot of the focus of the discussion about fentanyl and and the impact that it can have uh, about overdoses and deaths, etc., is happening over in, in British Columbia As a matter of fact, former uh, Cabinet Minister Hetty Fry suggested that if it were in Ontario, it would be a national story. Well, I suggested it is a national story and uh, that other people in the rest of the country are taking notice of this. Toronto Mayor John Tory mentioned this. and Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger has now called for a summit with public health over the opioid crisis and how to respond. That will be coming up very shortly, and uh, we're joined by Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger to talk about that. Mr. Mayor, thank you for the time. Happy New Year, by the way. We haven't talked for a while.
2: Good morning, Bill. Good morning.
1: Let's uh, let's talk about this crisis, uh, Mr. Mayor, and, and and your read on this, and and how you want the city to respond.
2: Well, we we want a comprehensive response. Like the uh, you know one of the uh, insights that we know already is this, this is a crisis in uh, in other parts of the country, and uh, Minister Philpott uh, just last month in December did a, a national uh, podcast and uh, session on uh, the opiate crisis uh, that they see across the country and uh we're seeing the increase of uh, availability of uh not only fentanyl but uh yeah,
3: the other the
2: other higher dose uh, fentanyl which is uh you know even more concerning that is a uh, hundred times more potent than uh, morphine and can kill you in one dosage so we're seeing an increase in death uh we're also seeing that uh that we are handing out naloxone kits, which is the antidote treatment and some two hundred and sixty eight people have been uh, revived as a result of that in uh, in in last year and the year before. And uh, that's saving lives. So um, there's also a first responders impact. And uh, when when you've got a drug as potent as 100 times morphine, that can actually harm you and potentially kill you with just casual contact. So we want to make sure that we have a, a well-developed and well-thought-out and, and comprehensive uh, all-agency approach to this that uh, we're well-prepared, and that we're, uh, we're able to uh, protect not only lives from folks that are addicted, but uh, but those that are going to be responding to these uh, issues as they are now and will continue to do in the future.
1: Well, we had the, the concern, and I think uh, legitimately so, a couple of weeks ago when Hamilton Police Services identified care fentanyl as, uh, as a substance that was now starting to make the rounds here in Hamilton. And, and I think... We're, we're probably not in the same crisis mode as, as Vancouver is right now, Mr. Mayor. But I guess uh, what you're suggesting that you, that you want to get going here is, 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 in a way, it's it's being proactive on this. I mean, it's already here, but you don't want it to reach those epidemic levels.
2: Exactly. And so we want to we want to nip it in the bud as quickly as we can. <clears throat> you know, it's so uh, if if there's an increase and we can step up the enforcement. Excuse me, <clears throat> my voice just went so. <clears throat> Uh, but we can step up the enforcement, uh, and that's certainly something that the police are already doing, knowing that there's contraband uh, fentanyl out there, which is a variable dosage that, uh, you know, some people that might be already addicted to fentanyl, which is not a good thing, uh, might might not be aware that a, you know, one dosage of 100 times uh, more, more significant can uh, kill them on the spot. And uh, if there aren't appropriate measures in place to either prevent them from getting it, or uh, uh, an antidote to uh, to save their lives, to give them an opportunity to get off of it and, uh, and get treatment. <clears throat> All of that are preventive measures that we need to be ready for.
1: Mr. Mayor, I want to talk about the public health aspect of this in just a couple of seconds, but but let, let's focus on, on, on police services for just a second. Of course, you are a member of the Police Services Board, of course, as the mayor, and uh, I know they have a meeting tomorrow. Now, the, the, I, on the agenda, obviously, is, is election of officers and things of this nature, you know, the, the new chair and vice chair, etc., or maybe the reaffirmation of the chair, whatever that might be, but but what about that discussion from the police services standpoint? I mean, enforcement and and, and concern about uh, this this epidemic that seems to be sweeping across the country right now is, is a concern for police services right across the country. Uh, are Hamilton police services equipped for this? Do they have the staffing to be able to deal with this?
2: Yeah, I mean they're, <laughs> they're dealing with it in a in a you know a comprehensive way, like they do with all drug drug activity in our community and. Drug addiction. I mean, they uh, they are uh, they are you know charged with uh, trying to prevent these drugs from hitting the streets and uh, and doing everything possible to try and prevent that from happening. But we know that it, it's out there in any event, and uh, there are a whole range of responders just beyond police that are involved in this. I mean, there are people that are in the addiction uh, prevention uh, world that are working day to day on the street. Uh, I'm going to be participating in in the next couple of weeks on the. Uh, needle exchange program to be out there on the street and see what's happening actually on on the ground to uh, get a, a good clear picture of uh, what i see is going on in our community i mean there are many people that are working in that field and are going to be coming into contact with uh, these drugs whatever potency they are so the policing matter uh... you know they're they're dealing with it as uh... you know as, as crime issues and as first response issues and you know they often attend uh, to people that are afflicted on the street, and, uh, you know, one of the, uh, the the call goes out, and, and the fire and paramedic and, po- and police all, all attend and participate, uh, but they're doing active, uh, you know, undercover and, uh, and uh, you know, above-cover work to uh, prevent these drugs from hitting the streets in the first place.
1: Mr. Mayor, let's talk a little bit about the needle exchange program, which which uh, public health officials will identify as a key part of the of the the, the response to this problem. She's uh, I can remember back in the late 1990s when you and I were both city councilors on this council, and there was a big pushback about needle exchange programs that that a lot of even on city council, but even within the community as well, suggesting that well that that really just promotes the the use of illegal drugs. Are, are, have we crossed that hurdle? Do we know better now?
2: Uh, well, I, I sure hope so. I mean, I, I think the uh, the needle exchange program has been in place uh, since then. And, uh, you know what, we haven't really had any great debates on this issue. I think people understand that drug addiction is an illness. And, uh, you know, if people are doing it unsafely or sharing needles or, or uh, you know, not doing it in a sanitized kind of way, then uh, you're, you're actually promoting, uh, you know, bad health outcomes for not only them, but a lot of other people. So this is, a, this is a prudent step for us to take. I, I think it's also prudent for us to accelerate the issue of safe injection sites. I mean, this is not about encouraging drug abuse. Uh, you know, we know that drug abuse is happening out there, and it's not its not a poor man's disease, and, you know, like many people uh, perceive it to be, that it's just for the down and out. Uh, it's a middle-income, upper-income uh, affliction that, that affects, uh, you know, sons and daughters, mothers and fathers, grandparents, and uh, the whole range and spectrum of our community. Uh, you know when you when you you, know, you drive by the methadone clinic downtown, uh, you know there are jaguars parked out in front uh, for people getting treatment. So you know this is not uh, this is not a poor man's uh, affliction. This is a disease. Uh, it needs to be treated as such. Uh, we need to take steps to ensure that we offer uh, preventive measures and health care benefits to those that are afflicted by it. And uh, needle exchange and safe injection sites do all of that and give us an opportunity to interact with these folks and try and get them off drug addiction totally.
1: There's a key element to this, too, that uh, that I know you've talked about with public health officials, Mr. Mayor, and, and that's creating a link between uh, the users and, and public health themselves. And, and needle exchange programs and even safe sites uh, tend to do that. Maybe not initially, but it, what it does is it creates a relationship between public health officials and and those that are afflicted by this and that could possibly and oftentimes does lead to them reaching out to those people to say, okay, now I need help uh, to try to get off this stuff.
2: Well, it's it's a really an effort to to bring this all out into the open. Uh, you know what? Uh, the worst possible scenario is that we have people in alleyways and on railway tracks and in you know dark corners and uh, in underpasses. Uh, You know, using drugs and leaving needles lying around and sharing needles and uh, doing it in such an unsafe manner that it's not only harmful to them, but harmful to a lot of other people. And so uh, bringing this out in the open, getting to know who they are and where they are and uh, having having a relationship, as you say, is an opportunity for public health to actually start educating them about how they can get off uh the the kind of availability of treatment that's out there and there's a significant amount of help and assistance out there for people that are drug addicted or opioid addicted or or alcohol addicted for that matter and uh you know that uh, really then begins a relationship that uh, be- can begin to uh, get them on the path of uh, getting off of these uh you know harmful drugs and getting onto uh, being productive members of our community uh, uh,
1: city councilors are also members of the board of health of course just by definition everybody on city council is a member of that uh, has there been a discussion about about prevention? Uh, in, uh, the programs we've talked about here, the needle exchange and safe site programs are are obviously a key part of those. Those are the people that have already become afflicted by this. but mm-hmm. uh, but what about that that education element, mr. mayor of of, of informing people uh, about the dangers of this so that hopefully they don't get involved with it in the first place?
2: Yeah, and that that's an ongoing process, uh, Bill, and we have lots of information for people available. We have uh, public health uh, officials that go into schools and talk about, uh, you know, addictions and drug challenges. Uh, you know, that that is an ongoing process that uh, is really so important to try and get people not to go down this path in the first place. But unfortunately, we see, you know, that there's a certain percentage of the population that, for whatever reason, and, you know, and I think it's an illness issue, not unlike mental illness are prone to becoming addicted. And uh, those folks, uh, you know, obviously need more specific treatment and more specific help. And that's why the needle exchange programs and safe injection sites really are targeted towards helping those specific people. But prevention and uh, informing people of the hazards and the impacts on families, and this is not just an individual issue for those that are addicted, it's not only about them, but the, but their entire family. And one of the Well, the heartening and, and, uh, you know, actually soul-searching issues that came out of uh, Minister Philpott's uh, session that day is bringing out a lot of people that have been through this process, professionals, lawyers, uh, uh, you know, regular, regular uh, city, city workers, I mean, all kinds of people doing testimonials about their level of addiction, how it's impacted their family, how it almost ruined their entire family and uh, the path that they went on to, uh, to get off the addiction and get on to more, more productive issues. So there's, um, you know, there's a real comprehensive approach here that needs to happen. That's why we're getting together on the, uh, on the 19th to, uh, to really look at uh, all the agencies out there that are working in this field, uh, all the first responders and the public health officials so that we can get a clear picture of what's going on out there, who's doing uh, what work in terms of prevention, and then uh, making sure that we have a comprehensive and wholesome uh, and safe plan to uh, to deal with uh, any increases in the particularly carfentanil uh, uh, usage out there that uh, can be so
1: harmful for first responders. I got an email from uh, one of our listeners uh, listening to our conversation here from Glenn. And Glenn, I appreciate the email. It, it basically, Mister Mayor, suggesting uh, what's the city going to do about? Uh, and he's he's referring to a couple of incidents you've heard in the news and we've heard in the news over the last couple of years of uh, of uh, parents taking little kids to playgrounds and finding needles and 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 obviously t- discarded needles. Uh in playground situations. The the safe sites are actually a way to try to combat that, aren't they?
2: Uh clearly. I mean, uh, you know, getting people off the streets and uh you know, away from uh from places where they should not be doing this kind of thing and, and getting them into a safe environment and allowing them uh at least understanding that this you well, know, first of all, we have to accept the fact that this kind of addiction is happening out there. I mean that really is the first step for for any community and then how, what is the best way of dealing with that and making it safe for everyone? And uh, safe injection sites is really kind of the the, the next path to uh, getting people into a safe environment, not leaving their, um, their their dirty needles behind for some some child to pick up and you uh, know play with or do something uh, that they shouldn't be doing with, and uh, making sure it all happens in a safe environment. Uh, that's just smart uh, smart practical approach to uh, to dealing with this issue, and that would prevent. Uh, you know any users out there from you know leaving their their paraphernalia in places where, where children and that anyone else could get access to them. You know I'm, I'm reminded of uh, a lady that I you know the little underpass under uh, going under the CN tracks off of uh, Hunter Street that goes up into uh, uh, the other side of Jackson Street. There's a family home there, and uh, the person that lived there uh, was, was always uh, you know bothered by the needles that were left just the other side of the tunnel of people using uh, drugs in that particular area. And she decided on her own to put out a separate container and then beautify that area with uh, flowers and plantings to try and send a message that, uh, you know, this is not the kind of thing that should be happening here. That's the kind of thing that can be prevented not only by the work of the, this individual, the creativity that they put into this, but by safe injection sites and, and creating environments where people can uh, get treatment, get the appropriate paraphernalia to do it safely, and uh, and uh, get off the path of uh, drug addiction.
1: Two weeks from tomorrow is when uh, this, uh, this summit will take place, January 26th. Uh, who's going to be at the table, Mr. Mayor? I would, I would imagine there are a lot of stakeholders there that that are interested in being part of this.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be uh, you know all public health providers in the community, and uh, you know we uh, we have researchers out there that are studying uh, public health issues around drug addiction. Uh, we have doctors out there that are specifically geared towards uh, drug addiction issues, and uh, and obviously we have all of the range of first responders and those that are currently involved in needle exchange programs, like and uh, and salvation army that are looking that are working on the streets uh, you know daily i mean all of those agencies will be part of this uh, effort to uh, come up with i think a uh, an understanding of what we all do and that's something that doesn't happen very often i mean everyone has a a role to play but quite often we uh, we don't always know what uh, what other agencies are doing so uh, so collectively it's going to be uh, the coroner's office, the Hamilton Police Services, paramedics, Hamilton Fire Department, emergency departments, primary care providers, and uh, addiction and harm reduction services in our community, as well as those uh, with lived experience. And of course, that's uh, you know almost the key issue of uh, bringing in people that have been through this, that understand uh, the, 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 the pitfalls of addiction and and what got them off the path of uh, addiction and onto uh, a better path. So uh, all of that will be part of our session, and hopefully that will educate all of us to know what we're all doing and uh, come up with some strategies that's going to be comprehensive and good for the entire community.
1: The the agencies you mentioned, of course, many of them, most of them, I guess, are public agencies, uh, border health, et cetera, police services, fire, and, and paramedics. Yep. But I, I, as you've mentioned, though, Mr. Mayor, there are a number of private sector agencies that are also working on this and, and, and battling this as well. And I, I would encourage them to be at this thing, even if they're not at the table, to at least attend and have their input into this as well.
2: Yeah, no, I agree, and uh, you know, and this may not be you know a one-off. So uh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna meet, and uh, it may very well be that uh, that a- after that meeting, we realize that there may be some gaps. So it's really about identifying, you know, gaps and agencies and uh, other uh, organizations out there that uh, maybe ought to be included, and uh, we'll take it from there. So uh, I, 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 I want to have a beginning. And uh, the beginning, hopefully, will get us to uh, what uh, what comprehensive means and uh, what agencies would fill that gap.
0: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
2: Honda,
1: this is the auto manufacturer, is spending a lot of money here in the province of Ontario right now, Ontario facilities, uh, to support uh, some, some new developments. And the Ontario government is uh, partnering with them in an awful lot of this. Now, that's good news because there's a lot of questions after the Trump election about what was going to happen to the auto industry here in Canada, and and even bigger questions about what's going to happen to the North American auto, in- auto industry in general. Now, they just went through their great big auto show, the Detroit Auto Show, which is an annual tradition, an iconic auto show every year, where all the bigwigs from all the, uh, the, the auto manufacturers are there, uh, touting their new models and what they're planning on for the coming year. And as you might have expected, a lot of the talk was about Donald Trump. And... It may surprise you that, for the most part, they kind of like them. At least that's the impression that the folks from Ford and some of the other auto manufacturers were talking about. So is this is this going to be good news for the auto industry in Canada and in the broader picture of North America? Let's uh, bring Marvin Ryder into the discussion, business professor of the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Marvin, thanks for the time. How are you doing this morning?
2: My pleasure, Bill. Happy to be here.
1: Great to have you with us here today. I was rather surprised, i got to tell you. Uh, when I saw some of the news clips uh, over the last couple of days about uh, the head honchos from Ford and and some of the other automakers in Detroit for that big auto show, actually saying we're looking forward to working with Donald Trump.
0: Well, um, you know, I'm going to phrase it a little differently than you set up this, uh, this segment. I think everyone is on pins and needles with a Donald Trump presidency. Nobody quite knows what to make of this person. We have never seen a previous president first use social media to the way that Donald Trump does. Be use it in such an erratic fashion, meaning one day he loves something the next day he hates something, the day after that he's back to a third place. And as a result, I think the smartest move anyone could make, whether it's a country like Canada or China or Mexico, or a business like Ford, Honda or General Motors, is to go in um, keeping keeping all your options available and not antagonizing the man. The last thing you want to do is get into Donald Trump's crosshairs, so as he's about to be inaugurated. I would say, um, let's say better than neutral, I would say relatively positive things about Donald Trump publicly, because I don't want him coming after us first. And I'm sure there's going to be a test case. I'm sure there's going to be something happen in the first two, three, four months of a Donald Trump presidency and he's going to then try to make them do something, whoever them is, and every business is going to watch that with great interest to try to figure out. So I think their positivity isn't so much that they think for sure he's going to be positive, but let's say that publicly because we don't want to antagonize the man.
1: Well, let's use the Ford example because, uh, and again, he was, that was one of the first auto manufacturers that Trump criticized a week and a half or so ago uh, because he heard you know, that they were exporting some of the cars down to Mexico and going to start making them there. Uh now uh, and the the head honchos at Ford over the uh, past week in Detroit were saying no 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 we we're looking forward to this cuz it's all about job creation and it's all about you know re- reducing taxes for businesses and these these are all good news stories i get the sense marvin that they also feel that look at if they could sit down and have a face to face with some of trump's people and explain that for instance that that move to you know to mexico was was a, a small little part of their operations. The Ford Focus, which is not even a big seller for them anymore, it's no big deal. Let, maybe you can just let that thing go by. And uh, I are, are they thinking right now that if they can explain their side of the story, that that the Trump uh, policies are, are going to be uh, modified a little bit anyway?
0: Yeah, I, I think there's actually maybe two or three different explanations for this, and you, you've given the first one. Donald Trump is by nature a negotiator. His famous book is The Art of the Deal. A deal even if worked. he didn't write it, he, well, it's his book. He's credited with it, Bill. Even yeah. though there was a ghostwriter, he's credited with it. It's funny, like many Trump buildings, have his name on it, even though he didn't build it. Um, anyway, Donald's a negotiator, so. Uh, I think many of these companies say, just like you're suggesting here, if I can get across from his people, probably not from Donald Trump directly, but his various advisors and ministers and, and secretaries, what have you, and lay out our case, they'll say, oh, right, right, I, I understand what you're doing, oh, that's not such a bad thing after all, or, and then and their mind also, if they can spin it and show how, yes, I'm investing some money in Mexico, but look, you know, I'm keeping the high-value-added jobs here. I'm putting the low-value-added jobs there. These are the jobs Americans don't want anyway. I think they feel that he might might be interested in that. But here's the other thing I think they feel might happen. Um, Donald Trump uh, seems to be, rather than a, a free trader, a protectionist. And what do I mean by that? He has suggested putting tariffs back on things, back to, quote-unquote, the good old days and the 40s, 50s, and 60s, where we protected domestic manufacturers by putting tariffs on foreign-made goods. And if if Donald Trump, for instance, decides that he wants to put a 35% duty on uh, on a vehicle made in China or a vehicle made in Mexico and then imported into the United States, I'm not sure I want to stand in his road. It's going to make my life easier to sell a vehicle because suddenly there's this price differential. What had happened in the United States, what some of the problems in the car industry came was that when we had, I'm going to describe it like this, superior technology coming out of places like Korea and and Japan, but priced the same as American technology, people said, well, why would I buy the American car? I'm going to buy the foreign technology at the same price point. So now, if Trump decides to put these duties, again, as much as 35%, And, oh, gosh, isn't that terrible what happened to to Kia? Or isn't that terrible what happened to Hyundai? But, look, it's helping me out as Ford or Chrysler. Uh, And then you pointed out the third thing that I think they like about him, forgetting for a moment about the tariffs and forgetting for a moment about his pontifications about where you're going to build cars, he's also said he's going to cut taxes. Well, you know, any company that is struggling to keep uh, their shareholders happy, generating the kind of return that they'd like to, the shareholders would like to see, if somebody comes along and says, I'm going to cut the marginal corporate tax rate from something like 35% to 12%, cut, get rid of two-thirds of the tax burden, again, I'm not sure I want to stand in that man's way. You know, you're, you're helping me. Now, whether that money gets reinvested in the country or whether it just lines the 1%'s pockets, that's that's not for the car company to debate. If Donald Trump wants to do that, I'm going to embrace him. So there, there's lots of reason to think that even though there will be some pain from a Trump presidency for the car industry, on balance, he may, for the, at least for the next four years, make things a lot easier for these car companies. Because remember... Remember, Bill, it was just eight years ago at the start of President Obama's presidency that we had both Chrysler and General Motors in in bankruptcy, in, in creditor protection. So, look, you know, you've now gone from that situation. Now with a person who's going to come in and maybe make your life really easy, you may not want to fight that guy.
1: All right, but a couple of points on that 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 I, I I guess I need some clarification on. First of all, the auto industry is is a much broader animal than it was back in the day. I mean, you know, it was always the discussion about the big three, but you can drive anywhere, and I know you spend uh, some holidays down in the states as you do in other parts of the world too, Marvin. But uh, you know, something there's a lot of people that bleed red, white, and blue that are driving Toyotas and Hondas now, uh, and it's because that's their car of choice. Uh, you know, they're not you know married to the idea of Chevy or GM or whatever the case might be. Uh, Do you risk getting into a war with these companies, these offshore companies that still have an influence on that American economy? I mean, some of them have plants there. But they've got dealerships there, too. I mean, if you start getting into a war where you're going to start restricting the sale of those or, where, or being told where they have to make these things, do you run a risk that some of these uh, states that, that, that rely on that auto industry, and I don't just mean you know the manufacturer of the cars, but auto parts and everything else, going back to the White House and saying, hey, hey, you're killing us here.
0: Yeah, so let me come at that in two different ways if I can, Bill. I, I was in Syracuse, New York, not that long ago, and I drove past the Auto Workers Union Hall. And when I drove past it, there was a sign over the parking lot that said, no, non-North American cars allowed here. And I thought to myself, well, how, how do you define that? If you were to open your hood under any car you want, whether it's a quote-unquote Japanese car, an American car, a German car, and take a look at all the various parts there, they are truly a global enterprise today. So are you basing this on where the car is assembled? Because if you are... There's lots of Japanese cars and even German cars that are now assembled in the United States. The parts come from Korea and Mexico and and Vietnam and Canada and, and, you know, France and who knows where it all comes from. But is it based on where it's assembled? Is it based on where the head office is? Because, again, in this global world, we live in a head office, in Tokyo is not necessarily the end of the world. It's where these parts are. Just, again, to give you an example, Toyota employs over three hundred and fifty thousand people in the united states whether it's through the dealerships through advertising or through the assembly and manufacture of automobiles or the parts for those automobiles if donald trump did decide to go after quote you know the foreigners he's actually shooting himself in the foot but again if i'm ford chrysler and General motors he's not coming at me so uh, you know it's a bit of it's now a bit of every man for themselves here I don't necessarily want him to go after these other companies, but if he chooses to do so and gets tied up in some kind of a trade war and a shooting match, and he's not shooting at me, that's a good news for them, and I think this is why they're cautiously optimistic.
1: Yeah, exactly. But except for those other three hundred thousand employees that work for Toyota, okay, and, and plus right. however many work for Hyundai and, and Honda, uh, those plant manufacturers in places like uh, Ohio and Michigan are, are going to come back and say, "Hey, wait a second. What about us? Uh, we can't afford to lose you know four hundred jobs at that plant if you start reducing production. That's going to be a concern." And and I guess the other question to go back to your original point is: It smart, really, from an economic standpoint? to start to to reinvent uh, protectionist policies in the 21st century, I mean whether you like it or not, this is a global economy and to start building walls all of a sudden seems to be bringing a 19th century mentality to a 21st century economy.
0: I would agree with you completely, Bill, and, but I, I understand the frustration of the average person. You know, I remember the good old days. Take here in Hamilton, you know, where, where the steel companies employed 30,000 people. Why can't we go back to those days? And I know the temptation is to blame offshore foreign interests what have you but the number one job killer in north america whether it was the steel industry or the car industry is technology it is robots we have replaced uh... uh thousands and thousands maybe tens of thousands maybe hundreds of thousands of workers with technology robots who don't take vacations don't need benefit plans don't have retirement plans uh, that never complain they never show up sick they're never hung over they so on and so forth uh, and i don 't see us ever reversing that trend, so uh, the danger here is if we get protectionists, we start blaming that company or that country what we 're missing is the true uh, true uh, technological revolution that has really really is the cause of us losing all these jobs, and, and no one 's going to go after that. so I think Donald Trump, to an extent and I have to be very careful here again because he 's not yet president, but at least in his campaign, he seemed to pander to the lowest common denominator he seemed to try to set one group of people against another group of people, or give credence to what we'll call it conventional wisdom. Well, I know why we're in trouble as those damn Chinese or as those damn Mexicans. And, And yet the world is much, much more complex than that. I am hoping that a real Trump presidency populated by a lot more brains than just Donald Trump's as we get all these secretaries and all these other people in position, will understand the complexity. And I suspect Donald Trump will pull back from this rhetoric. But again, if I'm for General Motors and Chrysler, this is a guy who seems to be in my corner, this is a president who specifically seems to be in my corner, says I'm here to help you. Um, At this moment, I, I don't mind that. I don't mind someone throwing me a little life raft.
1: Okay, but what do the numbers indicate? Uh, and let's look at the U.S. I, I, the North American numbers, I guess, are, are, are one aspect of this discussion. But the North, my understanding is the number one seller is still Toyota. It's not Ford or General Motors. Mm-hmm. You're
0: absolutely right. And then number two, I think, or about to come back to number two is Volkswagen. It fell down to number three or four after uh, all those different problems with those diesel engines. But I think Volkswagen is about to come back to number two.
1: So do you declare war against the, the two leading selling automobile you know, man, manufacturers in the world that are, you know, the number one and number two in, in, in your country? It, it just seems it seems wrongheaded. And, and but I, I know where you're coming from on this. And this is something that we talked about during the presidential campaign last year is how you separate the rhetoric from the reality here. And, and it, maybe you score votes when you go down to Ohio where there's you know a higher unemployment rate from people that used to work in auto plant manufacturing st- and they've lost their jobs. And you blame the Mexicans and you blame the Chinese, but the reality here is that those jobs aren't coming back. And it, it's not because they're in Mexico, it's like you say, it's because there's a computer that's doing the work of 100 people now, and that's not going to go back. They're not going to revert back to that, you know, where there's a guy on the assembly line every 10 feet. That's just not going to happen anymore.
0: So. If I can go back again to the, the famous book I quoted earlier, The Art of the Deal, Donald Trump says in that book, you do whatever you have to do, you say whatever you have to say to, quote, win in a negotiation. So if we take his run for presidency as an example, he said a number of things, some of them quite outrageous. Now that he has won, he, he basically won that deal, so to speak, he's pulled back from some of this and says, well, you know, maybe I don't want to lock up, maybe I don't want to build a wall. I think in terms of his trade negotiations, he's trying to stake out some ground that makes everyone afraid of him. And look, and look here in Canada. Our prime minister and our ambassador to the United States did something that I've never, ever seen before at the start of this week. They released a YouTube video in which they extolled the virtues of America trading with Canada as if it was necessary to remind people about Canada's role as the United States' most significant trading partner. Now, why did they do that? They did that because they were afraid of the rhetoric. This is exactly what Donald Trump wants. He wants to stir you up Get the high ground in any negotiation so that, in fact, if you have to give away an arm in the transaction but you keep the rest of the body, you feel you walked away and did well. He, on the other hand, has got an arm that he didn't have before the negotiation began. And that's, I think, again, a little uh, worrisome when it comes to Donald Trump. He is used to doing these Sort of outlandish things to give himself the high ground in any trade negotiation. The smart people out there, I think, are keeping their mouths shut. (laughs) You know, let him say whatever he wants to say, don't react. Let's see what happens. We'll enter those negotiations when we do. And, and I would advise the same to Canada. You know, if and when he ever wants to talk about NAFTA with us, we'll go into them. We'll listen to him, hear what he has to say. We'll put our interests on the table, but we won't get excited. If we get excited and lose the logic of the negotiation and just go to the emotion of the negotiation, he wins.
1: Well, and apparently those discussions have already started at the highest level with trump's team and and uh, with some of the negotiators here in Canada. and I guess the other shoe that dropped was well yesterday when you know the Prime Minister effectively fired his foreign affairs minister and uh, put Christopher Freeland in there who has very strong connections in Washington and in New York uh who's maybe a little more friendly and maybe a little more well known to an incoming administration than than Stefan Dion would have been
0: I think that's true, and I think also uh um just a, a different face, apparently some of the early feedback from the United States was that Stefan Dion was not the, the best negotiator, the not not the best person in the room. Whether that has to do with his English language skills, I'm not sure, but th- there's, there's just something like that going. So we need our very best people in our very best positions heading into this, or at least I think we do. Because again, uh, I hate to I hate keep kind of raise these questions, but during the political campaign, Donald Trump rarely, if ever, mentioned Canada. When he talked about ripping up NAFTA, it was almost always in the context of Mexico, or when he talked about imposing duties, it was almost always in the context of China. We're a bit of a mystery on the Donald Trump landscape. To the extent he says anything about Canada, it actually has been pretty positive to date. So I, I just don't get a good handle on what he wants to do, where does he want to go first. I don't know if this is top of his agenda or just something you stuck in uh, just to appease some people in Ohio and Pennsylvania, but it might get forgotten in the first year. And so I think we're best advised to sit on the sidelines, wait for him to get into office, and then just not overreact See what it is he wants to do and go accordingly.
1: We've got about a minute left here, but just to put a bow on our discussion and go back to the original point. Uh, about the impact it's going to have on the auto industry here in Canada. Honda obviously in yep. the Ontario government, $400 million dollar upgrade to the Allison plant and and to their credit the folks at Ford in Detroit this uh, past week also said that uh, notwithstanding what's coming out of, uh, of Mr. Trump's uh, Trump Tower uh, uh, missives these days that they are going to honor their commitment to the Canadian auto industry. Now you can take that for what it's worth but uh, that's somewhat reassuring.
0: Oh absolutely. So remember in that negotiation last year that was with Ford, General Motors and Chrysler and every one of those deals between the Canadian auto workers and those big three, saw a significant investment on the order of hundreds of millions. I won't quote the exact number, but around $400 million each. Now we have Honda planning to put $400 million in. This also says that our game, which is a quieter game, we don't stand and beat our chest, we don't threaten to do things, is also working. People see great value of being in Canada, and they're certainly prepared to make that investment. So I don't think people should necessarily worry about a Trump presidency, but when the rough times come, then let's make sure we're there at the fight. Otherwise, it might be smooth sailing. He may be going someplace else to start. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
1: Right now, let's uh, get into the U.S. political uh, maelstrom that seems to be going on these days. U.S. President Barack Obama uh, bid farewell to the U.S. yesterday. His final official speech was in Chicago, his kind of town. And uh, it was quite an evening, actually, if you watch the speech. Uh, we'll get into the Trump thing and the uh, confirmation hearings as well in just a couple of minutes. Uh, and to that end, we're so pleased to welcome Laura Babcock, president of Power Group, back to The Bill Kelly Show. How are you doing today, Laura?
3: I'm well. I'm trying to keep up with everything. Uh,
1: Listen, I know, I know you were pounding back the caffeine because you had a run in Toronto today to talk about this stuff, and you've got a bunch of other things going on today. So I I appreciate you taking the time uh, to do this. Before we get into the Trump stuff, uh, your your thoughts on the Obama speech last night? I guess I've seen uh, mixed messages on social media today.
3: I don't think there's really any mixed takeaway from that. It was him at his best, and reminded us of the Grant Park speech that he did on the night that he won the election and several other high-profile, high moments within his history as a high orator. He really delivered. You might have thought, I thought, possibly, it might be a more cynical, pedantic lecturer-in-chief Obama coming out to warn everybody. But you know what? He did what he does best. He mixed in his lessons with his hopefulness for the future. He, of course, uh, had some terrific lines that will go down in the history books, but also he was that guy that I think the world respects, who treated his family and his wife with such dignity and love in his speech that there wasn't a dry eye probably anywhere in the world watching that moment. So he delivered on everything that he's great at, the lessons, the learning, the, of course, take on his own legacy, but also the audacity of hope tone was there, and the the family man, the president who's gone eight years without a scandal or even a whiff of one, it was impressive, I think, by any count.
1: And and there, I know that there are some critics, as there always are. I mean, there are there are some people that you know have legitimate criticisms, others that are just luddites that say, well, he's a, he's a Democrat, so I hate him. Uh, he's a, a, a black man, so I hate him. And so you have to sift through those to try to, to to get some some meat to what's going on here. But but every outgoing president, whether it's George W. Bush or Barack Obama or or anybody else. Is always going to accentuate the positive in their administration, and there were there were some things. I mean, the numbers don't lie. Uh, you know, the economy is better than it was eight years ago. Job growth is better. There's a health care system in place. But while he's saying all this stuff, though, Laura, I I couldn't help but think, as I'm watching him deliver this in in typical Obama fashion, that there had to be a little part, a twinge of of of, of, of anger that a lot of the stuff I'm talking about right now could get overturned within the first 18 months or so of this next guy's administration.
3: Well, and that's why I think Chris Matthews used that great French expression, a cri de guerre. It was a call to arms to the Democrats to say, listen, (laughs) all this stuff we achieved together, we did more than we thought we even could. We need to get on our shoes, get our clipboards, and get out there. So he wasn't just standing up there, feeling that sense of this stuff better not all fall apart, he was literally giving marching instructions to the Democrats and the millions watching to make sure that it doesn't. So, you know, he's always one step ahead of everybody else, and you can argue, and I think it's a valid argument, that he was too slow in Syria, he missed a pivotal engagement window there that he has uh, Obamacare, its rollout, and and many things about it are deeply troubling and need to be fixed. He didn't get Guantanamo shut like he said he would. You know, there's, there's lots of different things. You can say the Iran deal has some problems with it. But at the end of the day, Obama knows that he is still the single best hope for the Democratic Party. And I think he looks at the long game. He is working to get youth engaged. Why? Because he's probably trying to create a coalition to vote out uh, President Trump in four years. So, you know, he had a lot going on in that speech.
1: Yeah, the the, the quote uh, and it was retweeted a number of times this morning was, "If you don't like what's going on, lace up your shoes, pick up a clipboard, and knock on some doors and get some signatures. In other words, become involved, be proactive. Don't just sit there. On and he actually made that reference. Don't just sit on social media and whine about it. Do something about it."
3: Yeah, absolutely. He said if you're tired of fighting with strangers on social media, go out there and fight with a real one. In other words, get the message out, get engaged. You can argue that, and it's true, that Hillary Clinton won by millions of the popular vote. But what she didn't do was engage with those places that she thought she had, those states that turned the whole electoral map over to Trump. So what Trump was doing was he was getting in there and talking to people. He was flying back and forth, and people were mocking him for looking crazed and dazed. But what he was doing was saying, I'm going to talk and shake hands and and listen to people and engage with people right up to the very last minute on the clock if it's going to make a difference. And so Obama is saying, come on, engagement makes the difference. Get out there and engage. You know, social media is fun, but it's also a highly passive activity. It's not quite the same as being a community organizer like he was, and he knows that's what it takes to beat someone like Trump.
1: All right, let's talk about the incoming administration. The uh, confirmation hearing started, of course, this week for the Senate uh, for the uh, uh, the uh, nominees that, uh, that Donald Trump has put forward, and uh, probably the two most controversial of those uh, yesterday and again today. Jeff Sessions yesterday. Now, this is a guy uh, who was refused some years ago a judicial appointment because of his racist views and, and his tendencies and some of the comments he made. Uh, I, I watched it, and I'm sure you did yesterday, Laura, too. I mean, Sessions tried to come across as Mr. Rogers as opposed to the Jeff Sessions that everybody knows. It was Is it going to work?
3: I think so. I think that he did a really good job yesterday. Uh, in terms of strategically positioning his message. I mean, let's not forget his grandkid over his shoulder the entire time. If you're trying to soften an image, they 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 pulled out all the bells and whistles. Yeah, there
1: was everything but a puppy in the picture.
3: That's right. And he also got ahead of his criticisms in his opening statement, which you want to do. He explained from his point of view what happened with those allegations and those cases back in the 80s. And he's sitting in front of his colleagues who, no matter what he said in the past, they've worked with him and they know exactly who he is. And while his positions may be uh, distasteful, I mean, his position on Roe v. Wade, he said, I will uphold it. It's the law of the land. And when they said, what about the Clinton because of your comments during the election? He said, well, if that comes across my desk, I'll recuse myself. And they said, well, what if Trump wants you to do something illegal? He said, well, I won't. I'll resign. So his answers to the challenges were solid. I don't think you could have written them better. But today is the big challenge, because Cory Booker is going to come at him in a way that is pretty unprecedented, Senator Booker. And also you've got the the congressman who was on the bridge at Selma and Beaton, who's going to come in front of him as one of the, the most important voices in human rights and in in north america so you know that's that's gonna
1: be one of those jacuz moments isn't it
3: yeah we'll see how that goes today but i think sessions is in and rex tillerson uh, as you know is testifying or he's in front of the committee now Uh, and you know he is he's coming at it pretty focused and pretty strong as we would expect for a guy who runs one of the biggest companies in the world so i think that rex will navigate the russian questions uh, better than certainly trump could
1: well, but there's the incongruity once again, and I saw some tweets on that, and of course, you know, the, 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 it was raised about, you know, that while well, you're still with Exxon, of course, he's doing business with countries where sanctions were supposed to be imposed. Uh, he just kind of sloughed that off, and, and, you know, he's a pretty smooth talker. He's coming across as just a good old boy. And as to the Russian situation, I mean, what he said yesterday about the Russians need to be, or today rather, and that Russians need to be held accountable is is somewhat a disconnect from what his boss is saying about this right now, but that that doesn't seem to matter to some of those people on the committee.
3: Well, there's a couple of things in what you've just said. One is that Jeff Sessions said yesterday, Senator Sessions said, you know, I would oppose any attempt to keep Muslims out of the country. So you have these people going rogue and saying speaking their mind from Trump's policies, which flip-flop all over the place. And, and Trump, Trump flip-flops on his ideas, and, but Trump respects people who are tough and focused. So I think that's that weird dichotomy that we're witnessing. But the other thing that I thought was really interesting in Tillerson's comments about Russia was he said, you know, we have to kind of go talk to Russia clear-eyed, understand what their agenda is so we can chart our course. That's different from a we need to hold Russia to account for obvious, uh, you know, hacks and egregious actions against our country, which is the language of the senators. So here you've got not only a a business pragmatic view of I'm not going to judge until I know the deal and then I'm just going to chart a course that can win, but you also have someone not echoing the level of concern that certainly some senators like mccain have about what russia has done in the intelligence community so it, he's not really holding russia to account in his language not from what i'm hearing he's more saying oh, let's hear what they have to say and, and let's strategize our own success that's not a moral Indictment of Russia
1: on any level. All right, let's get into that. We only got a few minutes left here, but obviously the the, the involvement with Trump and the Russians and and the security briefing that uh, the both President Obama and and President-elect Trump received separately. We should add, by the way, uh, suggesting that the Russians may have something on Donald Trump that they also hacked into some of his stuff. And uh, and and Trump has vehemently denied that he did it in capital letters on on Twitter, okay. Laura. So it must be true. Uh, that the whole thing is false. Uh, And, of course, the Russians are are denying there's any wrong going, too. These are the same Russians that denied there was any doping scandal a few months ago. So there's a credibility issue here. Where are we with this?
3: Well, the fact that Putin didn't just say it's not true—he said Russia, you know, the Russians said Russia doesn't engage, does not engage in collecting opposition research on people. I mean, it, it defies belief. Their denial is so over the top; it's almost as if they're they're trying to make it impossible to believe their denial, just to play with Trump. So, I mean, I found that quite weird. The other thing too on this is that you've got Bernstein, you know, from the from the Watergate uh, scandal. As the person who brought forward the cNN revelations about the fact that the this, these allegations were put forward to both the president and the president elect, that brings us to a whole new level. I mean the BuzzFeed stuff is salacious and concerning and uh, and totally unproven. but the fact that it was brought forward at the highest possible level because it represents a vulnerability for the incoming president to russia, I think is extremely significant, and we are looking at something that may well have the kind of resonance of Watergate. As Tom Broca said, there has never been a president coming into office with this much of a cloud of controversy. So really Russia is a millstone around Trump's neck and whether he's able to do anything to relieve some of that weight at his press conference in a few minutes, we'll have to see.
1: Well one question that I hope is going to be asked, and, and it's one that was was certainly uh, prevalent on, on social media this morning especially, is with this controversy right now, and you can deny, deny, deny all that uh, you want, but I mean it's still out there. Is is this the clarion call now for him to release his records, his tax records, and his business
3: dealings? Well, it does make you wonder if this is the reason why he didn't. Uh, And you know, because the idea is that the you want to keep the president uh, impervious from blackmail, so it's important to know their financial liabilities and and constraints. So, you know, really, what this is fascinating to me, just from a comms point of view, Bill, is these are Trump's own tactics being played against him. It's something unsubstantiated that gets so viral and so much traction that the damage is done anyhow. And you know that that's irritating him greatly because his response was all caps. You know, it's a loss of control over the top that does protest too much reaction that he's had to this latest bit of information. So I think it is important that the media not chase the the shiny objects during this presser with him and really try to drill down to see whether or not he is going to release those... Taxes and whether or not he's got a better answer than fake news,
1: fake news, fake news. Well, yeah, and that's always, and because I know that you know his, his his acolytes have been out there on the media trying to get all this stuff done, and uh, and the art of deflection, which uh, they they've become pretty good at right now, but they seem to be back on their heels a little bit. I mean, uh, the allegation, of course, uh, w- was talking about a a, a lawyer. Uh, but then Michael Cohen, who was supposedly the guy who was in the contact with the Russian government at this stage, and uh, Michael Cohen went on Twitter and said, "I have never been in Prague." With the allegations considered, now this, uh, Bernstein is is starting to, recover. Bernstein is saying, "It's not that Michael Cohen." I don't know where they dug this Michael Cohen up from, but that's not the Michael Cohen that we're talking about here. So it it it's it's not going away.
3: No, it's not. There's way too much smoke around the Russian narrative that there's got. It feels as though there's got to be a fire there somewhere. Now, whether or not that thing happened in the hotel, whether or not his team was colluding with the Russian government, whether or not Putin's blackmailing him or has been cultivating him for five years, we do not know the answer to that question. But those are questions we must get answers to. And that will take some time. And I don't think when you've got people like Bernstein on this, it's going to go away anytime soon.
1: Well, and especially because, like I say, it's one thing for Trump to simply deny everything and say, I have no business dealings, no money in Russia. The obvious answer to that is, well, prove it. Show us your records so that we can see that there are none. And we don't know that yet. And did he not promise Laura that after the election he was going to release that information?
3: Oh, before the election. I mean, the the, the line keeps moving. I, I'm still so waiting to see where he'll show up at this press conference because he's can't he's not shown up for them before either. So uh, Trump is not a guy who likes accountability. He doesn't like to be held accountable. He likes to make his own rules up. I think what's so different in this case, though, is that the media is wise to his tactics. And even though his followers may say, okay, well, it's fake news, and so, you know, it's that lamestream media, the corrupt media, we don't believe any of it, that's not his audience anymore. He got their votes. He got the job. Now he's got to deal with everybody else uh, in terms of Congress, the Senate, the judicial bench. Everything else is now saying, hold on a second, this smells to high heaven, and they're not going to be deflected off just because Kelly and Conway calls it, Fake, Not even fake news. I mean, who cares how they spin it? This is a big deal.
1: Yeah, but they were dismissive of the Clinton campaign when they used the same allegations uh, when, when the stories were coming out about her emails. Which, by the way, begs one other question here. Uh, the security forces and, and, and the agencies that actually briefed uh, the president-elect on this indicate that this is something that they've been looking into for the last couple of months, which would predate the election. Which begs the question, when they released the story about the fact that they were investigating Clinton, why didn't they include Trump in that in that letter?
3: Well, absolutely. And Clinton's campaign has come after Comey this morning. And a senator yesterday, when Comey said, we don't talk about ongoing investigations, he said the irony of you saying that, you know, is just he couldn't even find the words. So it does seem like a terrible double standard. And not just the FBI had this. The media had it for months, but they wouldn't go ahead on it. It kind of reminds me of, you know, when Gawker went ahead on the whole Rob Ford thing before the Toronto Star, who'd had... This stuff for a while. Uh, You know, BuzzFeed said, forget it, we're going with it now that CNN has, has hinted towards this content and we've got it. So, you know, the whole idea that the media had it, that senators had it, McCain gave it to the FBI, the FBI sat on it and didn't blow it up the way they blew up the Hillary investigation.
0: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.